0: Okay, so the first question that I have is about tithing. Tithing. Um, somebody tell me, what is, what is a tithe? Tenth? A tenth of... Income? For what purpose? Tithe is a tenth of income to support the temple. Okay? So, you know, the, the question is pretty much when it comes to the Christian, are we supposed to be tithing? Are we under the law of the tithe? Are we... I mean, is, is that our model, our instruction, the parameters for giving? Is this a new covenant thing? And so let's look in the old... Covenant for instruction about the tithe. So let's turn to uh, Leviticus 27, verse 30 to 32. It says every tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's it is holy to the Lord if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe he shall add a fifth to it and every tithe of herds and flocks every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord so here you can see where we get the idea of 10th One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. We see the tithe again in Deuteronomy 14. So there we see that. Uh, whether it's crops or land or animal, it was holy to the Lord, the tenth. Deuteronomy 14.22 Speaking of the tithe and the Christian, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So interesting thing there, the tithe was to be consumed by who? What does it say? Verse 23, Who shall eat the tithe of your grain? You. (laughs) You shall eat the tithe of your grain. Ever heard that in one of these uh, prosperity? Give your tithe. No, it says, You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Well, What do we see here? Again, this is the law. This is the law regarding the tithe. And there's more, many other places. Um, The the tithe was, uh, so you have 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. Now every single uh, member of this family of the, the, the tribes of Israel were given a portion of land except Levi. Because Levi were to be the priests. They were to dwell in the temple. That was where they were to spend their time. They did not get the inheritance of the land. Their inheritance, the Lord says, was him. He said, I'm your inheritance. And so how are they then who don't have land, who don't have flocks, who don't have possessions in that way, how are they going to be provided for? Well, the people who had all of that, the other 11 tribes were to take some of theirs give it for the purposes of both worship and provision for the Levites. For the, uh, the Levites. But this is within the law. This is within the, the context of the Mosaic law. And when you start to actually add the tithes, all the tithes that were given, you actually get up to about 20, 23, 25%. Now, we are Christians We are under a new covenant, are we not? So, so far as we've looked at the tithe, where have we found the tithe? In the old covenant, in the law, right? I mean, (laughs) the, the same chapter that tells you, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed, Look just above it, and what do you have there? What are those laws about? Clean and unclean animals. So the same chapter that tells you to tithe tells you don't eat pork, so no bacon. Sorry, guys. So we got to keep that in mind. The tithe is located in the law. And if we say, "Okay, the tithe is binding," then what are we saying about the rest of the law? Now, there's a lot of preachers who have gone to Malachi, and you're cursed with the curse. Will a man rob God? Uh, How have you robbed me? You've robbed me in tithe and offerings. Bring your tithe. Bring your offerings to the storehouse. Watch God open up a window of heaven, and you're not even able to contain. And what are they doing? They're seeking to manipulate. Often, sometimes it's ignorance, most of the time it's manipulation to force people, to compel people, put them on a guilt trip, and say, you must give me money. But when we come to the New Testament, we see something very interesting. First thing, regarding the law, and those who would want to live under the law. Uh, Galatians 5, for starters, Galatians 5 Starting with verse 1. Here's some good news. For freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now what is this yoke of slavery that Paul is saying don't submit to again? Look. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Now, circumcision is found where? In the law. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep how much of the law? The whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace. Strong words. And I have sat in many a church where the same thing is being said, not about circumcision, but about tithing. The pressure, this is your uh, evidence of, of holiness, of faith, of trust. If you don't give it, there's a curse upon you. If you want the blessings of God, it is held up as a measure of your very Christianity. But if you want to go back to that, what does it say? You're obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Strong language. And put very simply, as uh, James does with pretty much everything in the book of James, James 2.10. What does James 2.10 say? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. If you want to cling to a law, you're accountable to keep the whole. If you fail to keep one, you are guilty of breaking all. So, are you under the law of the tithe, Christian? Yes or no? No. Does that mean you can't give 10% of your money? No, it doesn't. Where does the Bible instruct the Christian regarding giving? The best place, the most thorough, is going to be 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which, for the sake of time, I won't read in its totality. But it's a very, I would submit... I would encourage you to read these chapters. If you have any um, confusion, concern, or wonder, you're battling, what am I supposed to be giving, how much, when, what's the heart behind it all, here it is, so beautifully packaged for us, setting us free in one hand and putting great responsibility upon us with another. The context of this, of course, is that Paul um, is talking about the the gathering, the collection for the saints and those who in their extreme poverty still wanted to give. So I will pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Those two things. Not reluctantly nor under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. There is the basic summary of New Testament giving. Each person decides in their own heart how much they want to give. No one is supposed to be compelling you, and you're not supposed to be giving uh, reluctantly, like, oh, I really don't want to do this, but I'm supposed to. No, God loves a cheerful giver. You know what the Bible says? You know what the New Testament uh, uh, position is for the Christian? Give as much as you want. Give whatever you want. It's completely up to you. There's freedom. You want to give 10%? Go ahead. You want to give 100%? Go ahead. You want to give 2%? Go ahead. Before the Lord, you are free. Paul makes a case and shows how those, again, who were in extreme poverty and had already given wanted to give even more. And he talked about the benefits of giving and how it it results in God being uh, thanked and glorified and the saints who gave being prayed for and and the wealth of generosity that has come because of your giving. But he summarizes it all up after all of that and says at the end of the day, you decide in your own heart how much you want to give. And don't let anyone else compel you or force you to give anything. There's the freedom. Questions? Comments? Yeah, I don't know if the microphone could pick up what our sister said, but there are churches who require their members to provide their W 2 to make sure that they're giving their whole tithe. I've been in churches, so called, where they would take a collection, close and lock the door, and say, We don't have enough. Count it right in front of the people. You need to dig deeper. All of that is a complete violation of the clear teaching of Scripture. That's compulsion. That's manipulation. That's scheming. It's greed. It's robbery. It's evil. And woe to those on the day of judgment if they don't repent who have done that to God's people. Anything else uh, about the tithe? Okay, there was another question, Uh, well, actually a couple, that came in this morning. Okay, how can we tell the difference between demonic oppression and physical illness? Things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, low thyroid, brain tumor, etc., Physical illness, demonic oppression. I think we could also say possession. Um, Is there a difference? How do we tell the difference? Is it black and white? Is there some gray? What do we do with this? Well, the first thing that we can clearly say is that whether we're talking about demonic oppression or possession or actual sickness, both realms, both realities exist and are a result of the fall. Uh, There there were no um, demonic possessions or illness in the garden before the fall, and there will be none of that in the New Jerusalem. So here we know Whatever this is, it's a result of sin. Uh, It is something that is... It is something that will not be in the new Jerusalem. The second thing, which uh, actually Adonai helped me to think through this. We were driving and I was talking to him about this. Uh, There's also the reality of this that we have to make clear... The Christian and the unbeliever. We have to make a distinction there. Can the Christian be possessed by a demon? Who says yes? Who says maybe? I'm not sure. Okay, everyone says no? Tell me why not. Prove it. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In in the world. Amen? Who who, who is in you, Christian? Holy Spirit. Of course, we went through Colossians. Christ in you. The hope of glory. So, the Spirit of God, Christ Himself, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ and Christ is pleased to dwell in you. Amazing. He has granted to you His divine power. Everything that pertains to life and godliness. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in you. And where the Spirit is, there is liberty. And all you have to do is just a brief read through the Gospels and see what happened when Jesus came into the presence of demons. They didn't stick around. They didn't say, this is okay. They wanted to get out of His presence immediately. They screamed in terror, and begged for mercy. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, by the Son of God, and therefore no demon can dwell where the Spirit of God is. Christians can't be demon-possessed, controlled. Um, <clears throat> that does not mean that we cannot be oppressed. That does not mean that we cannot be Tempted that does not mean that we cannot be uh, attacked, assaulted, bombarded. Look at Job. So, that's important. When you're talking about possession, we're only talking about unbelievers. Mental illness. Physical illness as well. There is... Um, There's a lot being said these days about mental illness, especially in the Christian counseling, biblical counseling, Christian psychiatry. There's good talk um, across the aisles about these things. But when it comes to this issue, what does the Bible say? Well, let's, let's look at some examples and... Let's turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter four, verse twenty eight. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like bird claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. My reason returned to me. His reason was taken. His reason was returned. Now, if we were to look at this man in our day, where would we put him? A mental institution. Why? He's living with the animals. His hair has grown long. His nails have grown long. He's, e- he's eating grass. And this isn't just for a day or a week or a month. This is seven periods, which many understand, most understand, to be seven years. And think about that. Here he is, in his right mind, reasoning, thinking, talking. He's ruling. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, a force to be reckoned with. And just like that, his mind is gone. And he acts like an animal for seven years. This is not demons. This is the Lord striking him with madness. What does that tell us? Everyone who acts in such a way is not dealing with a mental or physical or physiological problem, everyone who acts this way, we can't just assign to the role of sick. Neither can we assign everyone to the role of God is humbling them and punishing them. But this exists. We can think of um, uh, other examples most found in the Gospels um, Luke 4 36. Some of you have done um, evangelism, where you've seen such a thing. Actually, we'll start with verse 31, uh, Luke 4:31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What do we have here? We have a man who is being spoken through. Someone else's voice is coming through. This man is not asking Jesus, the demon is. again evangelism maybe you've seen this where someone they're talking but they're not talking you say what's wrong with this person well maybe they haven't had their medicine maybe or maybe they are filled with demons but jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and when the demon had thrown him down in their midst there's another sign the demon is just throwing this person to the ground. If we saw someone who did that, oh, they have fainting spells, or they, you know, they, they just can't control it. They just throw themselves against walls and this and that. Here the demon did that. He came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. How about Luke 9.24, or 42 rather. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son... For he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Again, think of seeing something like this in our context. Here is this child suddenly being seized. Seize up, tense up, foaming at the mouth, falling to the ground, shaking, trembling. What would we say of such a thing? Maybe it's epilepsy. Maybe it's some type of seizure. Maybe it is something wrong in the brain. Or maybe it's demons. Maybe it's demons. Demons. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Much more can be said, more examples. Um, I think of the the man who had the, the legion of demons, maybe my favorite example of this. Again, here's this man who had said so strong, supernatural strength, no one could bind him, no one could hold him, no one could restrain him, he didn't wear clothes, he wandered in the the, the tombs among the graves, crying out all night, cutting himself with stones, this type of behavior we would immediately classify as something is mentally wrong with them and yet clearly we see this is the matter of demons and when Jesus healed him it said that he was seated clothed and in his what his right mind his right mind what about physical illness what about John 9? Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, a man blind from birth rather, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, some said, well, is it demons? And others said, well, maybe it's sin. The reason why people have this physical malady is because somebody did something wrong. You have a child and your child is born with Down syndrome. And they start looking at the parents. Which one of you is responsible for this? You have a, a, a child who was born healthy, but early in their youth, they, they become paralyzed. Something goes wrong with them. And people start to ask the question, did the child do something wrong? Is this, is this a, a punishment from God? I mean, they're asking this question, why? Because this was the theology of the day. There were certain thoughts about why things went wrong. Job his friends, you must have done something to deserve this. How does the Lord respond? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we have a huge pot of issues. Um, blindness, sickness, a mental illness. And in that pot of all this behavior, you also must make room for demon possession and the Lord's judgment. Is there a way that we can tell? Is it black and white? Is it simple? I, I, I don't know that it is as simple as that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Luke was a physician. fact of the matter is, Paul told Timothy, take some wine for your stomach's constant ailments. Medicine is something that was used in the Bible, encouraged to be used. And there was the reality of demons. And I think, as Christians in this modern era, we have maybe looked down on the possibility of demonic possession or even judgment from the Lord or some issue... um, 1 Corinthians 15. Taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What was one of the results of that? This is why many of you are what? Sick and weak. And some of you have died. James, if any of you are sick, let him call on the elders. Let him lay hands, oil. And if you have sinned, what does he say? Confess your sins. It's it's not a, a simple... You know there are questions that must be asked and things that must be looked at. And uh, but what I will say, as not an expert on this matter at all, is that one of the things I think that we must do is leave possibility open. If they're lost, that this is the this is the evidence of demons. And if you're a Christian and you are walking in unrepentant sin. What does David say? He didn't confess his sin, and he says his bones dried up. He was wasting away. He had no rest. He had no peace. He had no comfort. You think of anxiety. You think of depression. You think of the darkness, suicidal thoughts. And a Christian could be dealing with spiritual depression. And you get to the point and you look at what David had to say. You look at what 1 Corinthians 15 has to say. You look at what James 5 has to say. And the question is, is there any sin that needs to be repented of? And if at the end of the day, there's no sin that I know of, there's nothing that I'm holding, as far as I know, I know nothing against myself, then what can we conclude? Whatever uh, issue you're dealing with, whether it's in the mind, in the heart, in the body, you can say, like John 9 says, this situation was thrust upon you for the sake of the glory of God. This situation that you're dealing with may be because Satan came to the Lord and the Lord said, have you considered my servant and fill in your name? And look at what Job went through. So, in one sense, I say I don't know, but those things that I've said is what I do know. Any other thoughts or comments that lead to any other questions? If you're the one dealing with these emotions, these feelings, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in all humility and all transparency. Father, like one of the things that I deal with is like social anxieties. I know, like standing up here, like what am I doing? Standing before people, being in crowds, start sweating, panic, anxiety, all that. And I take this to my Father in heaven. Father, is this a lack of faith in you? What am I worried about? Is this temptation from the devil to believe a lie? Is this something physiological? Is this because I don't get enough sleep? Is it something I'm eating? I don't know what it is, Lord, but I lift it up to you. Help me to trust you through this. What do I need to learn from this? What do I need to do? Is there any way that I can change this? Is there any way that I'm causing this? And then you walk in faith. And you cling to Him. You cling to Him so closely. And you may do like Paul did and say, Father, please take this away from me. And He may say, My grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes the glory of God is revealed in Him rescuing you you out of the lion's den. And sometimes it's in keeping you in the lion's den as He stays with you and you trust Him though the lions roar around you. <coughs> Take it to the Lord in prayer. Okay. Uh, we've got time for maybe one or two more questions. Are there any in the house? Any questions here? I have another one on the docket, but I just wanted to give opportunity for... Someone else? No, yes, Second Samuel, Second Samuel, three through fifteen. Wait. Second Samuel, what? Three fifteen, sorry. Fourteen. good question. So, in Second Samuel three, fourteen, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, "Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines." And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. The question is Was this right of David to do? It is very sad, yes. So, if you remember, David won. Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. And Saul actually, you know, what, what, what was it said? What will be done for the man who slays Goliath? Well, the king's going to give you this, this, and you even get his daughter. David kills Goliath? Okay. Well, Saul wanted to do harm to David. So he said, okay, you can have my uh, daughter for all these foreskins, basically slaughter a bunch of Philistines because he thought this would be an occasion for David to fall and die. Well, the Lord gave David victory. He won the hand. Michal was his wife um, before the Lord. Well, with all the pursuing and the wickedness of Saul, David had to flee. And if you remember the uh, situation, he was with his wife and she said, um, Going out the window and she put some like I think it was goat hair and like a, a statue or something under the bed made it look like it was him the guys came in um, pulled it back that's not David and she lied and said yeah David he threatened me and all this kind of thing and so because he was gone his wife was given to another man David returns I want my wife and here's the situation that we have. So David was right in wanting his wife. Saul was wrong in giving his daughter to another man. And the man who got caught in the middle of all this, poor guy, loved this woman. He's weeping the whole way behind her. But he really was, he, he really had no claim to that woman. She was David's wife. Hmm. if, well, divorce, right? So he didn't divorce her. She was taken from him. Um, And so that's not the same thing. That would be similar to if, uh, because there were times when there would be raids on um, the village or the town and people would steal children, steal wives, and the men And I trust every man here would do the same, would strap on his sword and go get his wife and take her back. And even if she was defiled among those who stole her, that's his wife and he would take her back. If he had divorced her, and of course the law talks about the progression of all that, then that man who first divorced her after all those marriages, remarriages, divorces, would not be able to go back and take her. But again, that's under the law, which we're not under Anymore, but that was the law. Yeah, good, good question. Okay, is there another? All right, kind of avoiding this one because this one's tricky. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, it is tricky though. Let's turn to Zechariah, and here's the the last question that I have: Zechariah chapter five. This is what happens when you read through the Bible as a church. You uh, You hear things and you say, huh, what is that? Zechariah 5, we start with verse 5 and we'll read down to verse 10. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, sorry, I give you all moment to find Zechariah. It's not like finding Matthew or Romans, right? Um, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. So you get the picture, right? There's this huge basket, has this heavy lid on it. And the angel brings Zechariah forward and says, look, what do you see? Well, what is this? Lifts the cover. He looks inside and there's a woman trying to get out. How do I know trying to get out? Because of what we read next. And he thrust her back into the basket, right? And thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. There's a woman in here. She tries to get out. The angel throws her back in, puts the lid back on, And, of course, the question is going to be, what is this? Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. Three times, wings. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? Now remember, the basket is filled with a woman, not a real woman, a woman who symbolizes what? Wickedness. This is the iniquity. This is sin. It's a basket of sin that has a cover on it. And these two women come forward, lift up this basket, and they're about to take this somewhere. Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it, a house for wickedness. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So these ladies with wings are taking this basket full of wickedness, illustrated by a woman, to the land of Shinar to build a house. A house means dwelling." means stability, means this is going to be here. This isn't a tent, it's a house. It's not a stay over, it's not a sleepover. no slumber party. A house with a foundation, meaning what? There is going to be much wickedness, much iniquity in this land. Now the question is, not about the basket, nor about the woman in the basket, but about the women who are holding the basket, are these women angels? Fair question. You got women. They got wings. They seem to have some type of supernatural power. They're being used. What is this going on? So, I'm just going to take a stab at it. Again, me and Adonai were trying to think through this on the way here. And I agree with Calvin's point of view. Uh, Not so much MacArthur's, but Calvin's. And what Calvin had to say... Is that um, why women? Well, women, rather than men or warriors, is a uh, it's a demonstration of, and no disrespect, ladies, but weakness to do this great and terrible thing. You have women, not soldiers, not warriors, not kings, but two ladies who are going to bring the thing that's going to tear down this kingdom. It's the same as when Deborah was made a judge. It was a sign of judgment. A woman will bring down the kingdom. Uh, What's the deal with the wings? Well, Symbolically, what do wings mean? You have the four living creatures, one of them like an eagle in flight. You have these creatures around the throne. Um, there's, there's language about wings and uh, the four living creatures, the one, the one that looks like an eagle in flight, it has to do with the swiftness, the, the quickness. Um, so that's Calvin's perspective. I, I, I like that. Um, the idea of women angels seems strange, but you can make a case for it based on these verses, I think, that maybe that is what it is. Anybody have any other ideas? MacArthur said these women are demons because uh, the stork was an unclean bird and so they have wings of an unclean animal and since they are the ones bringing this judgment, they would be, right? But what me and Adonai was saying was, but they're still angels then, right? I mean, demons are just fallen angels and they had to be female before the fall. So whether you do that or not, you still have angels. And eagles are also unclean animals. And what does the Bible talk about? The wind... the on wings of eagle, you will rise up, and all that. So, <clears throat> uh, even the living creatures, like an eagle in flight. So that's why I disagree with our brother, Doctor Pastor MacArthur. Anybody have any other ideas about that? Yeah, this is dealing with the uh, the Chaldeans and the bloodthirsty Chaldeans, which is very interesting. That God raised up to bring judgment, and then He's going to judge them. But yeah, clearly the basket is symbolic. The w- the woman inside of it is symbolic. Are the women carrying it also symbolic? A distinction is made. The angels said to me, and it doesn't say two angels came. They're women. They have wings. They're doing the service of the Lord. Angel just means messenger at the end of the day. You want to say something, brother? That's what I was going to say. Is kind of like the question is: Is this kind of vision recognition just symbolism of spiritual reality, or is this like actual? video Whatever we conclude, we got to say: it's a bit stark, <laughs> it stands out. Uh, I had never noticed it before, Um, so yeah, I wouldn't build a denomination around this, but uh, it is definitely something to look into. All right, let's pray. Father, this world is filled with suffering. People are dealing with all kinds of issues, mental issues, emotional issues, physical issues, definitely spiritual issues. Lord, even among us, some of us deal with uh, all kinds of things in the mind, in the heart. And Lord... You are the king. You are the healer, the great physician. Lord, we want to trust you. If any of the things that we deal with is because of our sin, a lack of love, a lack of faith, we don't want to hold on to it. And Father, if this is the path, if this is the cross that you have for us to bear, may we bear it in faith and trust and looking to you, uh, not causing blasphemy, but even in the way that we deal with these things, bringing glory to your great name. Lord, help us to be cheerful givers who give not under compulsion or reluctant, but because You are generous and have given the greatest gift of all, Your own Son, for the likes of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.